Vet clinics in animal hospitals don't function well unless they have a great team. And nurses play such an important role in delivering first-class care for our pets. They're responsible for some of the most thankless tasks, and they may be the one who takes your call or takes your pet in to see the vet. But that is just the tip of the iceberg. Hello and welcome to Flynn's Talk. This is episode 16, Jazz. Sweet 16. Welcome back. The big one six. Nice to be back again. Nice to know that I haven't been permanently replaced by Dr. Cam. No, mate. You're well and truly embedded. You're part of the furniture. Part of the furniture. Good to know. Good to know. Uh, we got an exciting one. We do have another exciting one. It's, um, well, every week's exciting. And we realised that uh, we've you know covered off so many different areas of the veterinary field um, and outside the veterinary field as well throughout this series. Uh, but we haven't spoken to a clinical vet nurse um, throughout, the, throughout the show. So today, Sinead Greer is going to join us, uh, who some of our listeners may know Sinead from having organised the charity ball for vet mental health earlier in the year, which was... Um, an awesome night and, and raised a, a heap and heap, heap of money uh, through auctions and sales of tickets. So, um, yeah, I'm looking forward to having Sinead on and getting her perspective, Jez, on on what it's like to be there in the trenches, um, particularly during this COVID time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's great that that um, she's able to give that perspective and she's also been sort of part of the Flynn's Walk family over the, over the last year or two and and helped us along the way as well. So it's it's great to be able to have her on. Sinead Greer is a vet nurse and uh, is joining us over the Zoom universe. Welcome to Flynn's Talk. Thanks for having me. Now, I want to tackle the big things first. Jez, I don't know about you. Have you ever tried to give Nina the Border Terrier a pill? Yes. Um, she used to be, when she was a pup, she was really good at it. Um, she would just eat anything. And now now it's peanut butter. She gets she gets a pill a day for her. She gets grass allergies. Um, so now it, a little bit of peanut butter on the pill and, and it goes straight down. That sounds very cooperative. My cat, Evie, the ginger, and my cat, Maisie, before Sinead, goes from beautiful little cat to like wild mongoose wildebeest in the space of about 25 (laughs) seconds. How the hell do you get a pill into a cat? Look, most of the time we make it look pretty easy, but there are cats that it takes a towel wrapping technique and two of us to do it. So, but we also have these really cool things. They're called pill poppers and they're like almost like the length of a pencil and you put the pill in the end of it and then it stops your fingers getting bitten. Like a little, like a blowgun. Yeah, yeah. And these must be like $1,000 to buy or something, a specialist (laughs) item, I imagine. No, not at all. They're like, I don't know, 10 10 bucks or something. Game changer. Yeah. Could I do the same thing with a straw? (laughs) Ah. Probably not. It depends if you could get the pill in the end of the straw. But if you true, if you give it a true. go, can you film it? Yep. All right. Challenge. <laughs> That's reminding me of like the uh, pulling the biro ink part out yeah, of yeah, the yeah. pen in high school yep. and spitting the paper ball. Yep. Anyway. Uh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I wasn't one of those kids. I didn't ever did that. Sure. Sure. <laughs> so um, we were chatting just before we hit record. Um, we we're talking about your cat Felix. Tell us about the pet line up at home. So we've got, yeah, Felix the the cat, original name. I didn't name him. It was Chris, my hubby. I was, I would have gone along the lines of maybe Taco or something fun or I don't know, because he's orange. I took him home for the weekend or oh, maybe four years ago now. 
And um, it was only supposed to be over the long weekend, but Chris fell in love with him and he got along with our boxer at the time and I wasn't allergic to him because I'm sort of allergic to most cats, although I've somewhat been desensitised, I think, over the past 10 years. Um, so, yeah, he's he's our adopted cat. And then we've got Lulu, the adopted French bulldog. We call her Lulu Lemon because she's got a number of problems. <laughs> Not the active wear range. Isn't there an active wear range for that? Yeah, yeah, it is. <laughs> I like yeah. that. Right. Yeah. Lulu the lemon, as in, yeah, with you. She's got a ridiculously long tongue that hangs out of her face about 99% of the time. <laughs> but she's adorable. And, yeah, we've had her for about three years and she's four now. And we, um, yeah, recently lost our 11-year-old boxer this year, Jet. Um, and I've also got a horse that's adjusted about, yeah, 15 minutes away. Nice. Oh, that sounds like a, sounds like a proper farm out there. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I, I could probably fit the horse in the backyard, but I don't know that, uh, Chris would be too impressed with her. Yeah, fair <laughs> enough. So you're obviously a, you're obviously a vet nurse. You're, you're at the, uh, the Yarrambatton North Warren died vet surgery. Is that, have I got that one right? Yeah. Yeah. So take us through a bit about how you started there, what what the journey was to become a vet nurse and, and how you got to where you are now. Yeah, so, I mean, in high school I had the dream that most of, I think, vet nurses or um, anyone that wants to get into the, the animal industry, I wanted to be a vet. But then I was told that I probably wouldn't get the grades because they were just ridiculously high. I was like an enter score of 99.6 or something. So I then looked at the option of just getting into a animal-related uni degree and I went and did um, a Bachelor of Animal and Veterinary Bioscience at La Trobe. And um, then sort of I really didn't know which career path to go. I just knew that I wanted to work with animals and I decided that um, wildlife and zookeeping was like an interest of mine and then I, over the three years of the course, I realized that how incredibly competitive and challenging it is to get into the zoo. Um, so then I looked at the option of getting into the zoo as a vet nurse. And so I began that journey and found myself absolutely just loving vet nursing and what it had to offer. And so I just, I, I mean, I still worked at getting into the, the zoo and ended up in um, Hillsville Sanctuary for three months, but overall I realised that the vet nursing side of things was exactly where I sort of wanted to be. You hear that a lot, how how sort of competitive getting into those zoos are. Yeah. Oh, yeah, we've heard that from quite a few people that you really you really got to be really lucky and sort of right up in the top echelon to actually to actually get there. Yeah, I worked incredibly hard. I volunteered a lot and made contacts and did my work experience there and then continued volunteering for two years there before I, yeah, before I got, got the job. And it, even then it was a, a maternity sort of cover position, but still I got, I got there, but yeah, took, took a, a lot of um, time and commitment and um, patience. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Part of um, the, the course of us, um, running Flynn's Walk and, and the, the Instagram account and Facebook account has meant that I follow a hell of a lot of nurses and vets and wildlife people and um, 
cat and dog rescue groups, although I think I followed a few of those before we started all this anyway, admittedly. Um, I saw an interesting graphic that described nurses as an iceberg. Now, before you think, um, where's he going with this, it actually sort of described as a lot of what people see that vet nurses do is just the tip of the iceberg and there's a lot more below the surface. But best for you to explain, like what what is a day in the life, a week in the life of a nurse in a clinic or, or hospital? Yeah, actually, that's a pretty good, yeah, I think I, I have seen that before. It's sort of, it's, yeah, it's not. Uh, it's not because we're cold, <laughs> <laughs> or sink ships. <laughs> or sink, uh, now, exactly. I didn't say that. <laughs> or just drift. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it. Um. Yeah, you're right. It's like a underneath the surface. There's so much more. Like the clients see um, the admitting of the animals, the discharging of the animals, um, the reception duties calls, cash payments, bookings, all those sorts of things. Um, and, you know, at times we sort of get referred to as just receptionists without actually realising that we are a jack of all trades in the industry. So what the clients don't see is that um, we're completely capable of taking blood, um, nursing animals, uh, putting IV catheters in, um, positioning patients for x-rays, um, monitoring patients, uh, emergency care, like the list goes on, like there's so much. There's cleaning and washing and, you know, teaching other staff, um, educating our clients. Um, And at the end of the day, we're sort of the voice for the animal. Like we're the ones nursing them. We're the ones that are going to yell out if we think it's in pain or we think it, um, you know, needs to go out for a walk to go to the toilet or its bed needs changing. So there's so much more um, than than just yeah what what the clients see sometimes and um, and I think I'd sort of become aware of this the more or the longer I've been in the industry because um, initially sort of you get a bit disheartened if you get a, a complaint about your discharge or you're admitting with a client and they think that you've sort of just rushed through it or brushed them off but at the end of the day, I think we need to realise that they don't see any of that stuff. So we need to make sure that we're communicating with them the care that we have been giving them within the hospital and going through everything really um, detailed so they know what we've done and that they're not just handing over money for, a, you know, what they might think is just an in procedure and then out. And I imagine like while you're studying, you and like many fields, you learn how to be a nurse, you learn procedures and particular practical skills. When you actually launch out into the field and start working, you have to learn how to deal with individual animals with different personalities, just like people and the people as well, right? Yeah, for sure, 100%. And you that you kind of learn on the job and you realise that there is so much more client communication and uh customer service then you then you realize like when when you get into the the industry as a vet nurse you kind of warned about all the cleaning you'll do but no one actually ever really warns you about how much of an impact the client um interactions will have on you well you essentially i mean that's 
that's what's often like we often talk about the the stresses that all the vets are under and the the fact that that's why a lot of the that's the fact that why the suicide rates for vets are so much higher but often that's the vet nurse that is standing right beside them helping them they're they're helping with the euthanasia they they might be the one who's providing support to the family afterwards they're the ones that are getting abuse from the clients so you the vet nurses are really they're sort of the unsung heroes. They're really they're down in the ditches with the with the vets, with the surgeons, but don't always get the same recognition. Yeah, yeah, and I guess there's um, yeah, like not not only are you managing that and you're trying to help your vet um, nurses have all those other things like actually uh, running the bloods and taking the phone calls and juggling it all and managing that workload. It's it's a challenge at times, for sure. Speaking of challenges, I mean, we're, we're over 2020, <laughs> it's fair to say, um, in more ways than one, but it's meant a lot of extra challenges for how you operate um, as a clinic more broadly. And for you, there's two clinics and split teams. That I tell, take us through what the last six months has been like and where you've had to pivot and adapt and all these words in unprecedented times just to get that one in to go the full bingo. Exactly what you said. So we've been split into teams and I think uh, across most of the clinics um, in the industry, I think that's what's happened. They've split their clinics into a number of teams. That It also means that we haven't had um, these clients into the building um, in most cases. I mean, ours is we're sort of limited to one. Um, but I mean, there, there were, um, suggestions given to the, the industry, um, about how we should manage them. But again, it was sort of left to each clinic, the way they handle it. But yeah, so split into two teams. So that means that we're understaffed on most days, if not every day, not having, uh, people in the building means that, you know, the, the phone lines are just running absolutely mad because they're calling us when they get here to let us know that they're here. So then um, in some cases, we'll send a nurse out to collect them from the car. Um, You know, in some clinics, that's bringing the animal in, holding the animal for the vet. And then there's just a bit of backwards and forwards in communication because the client isn't in the clinic. Obviously, infection control, like cleanings, cleaning regimes, just like amped up. It's just nuts I think because everyone's at home and they're in a position to put their animals at you know top priority I mean most people do but I think it becomes even more of a priority because they're not doing um much else or they might be working from home so they're in a position to be looking at their animal all the time um and so that's increased our workload dramatically do you find then that you often like people will bring an animal in before something gets too serious if if they're if they're sort of at home and catching something earlier? Yeah, so we're seeing a, you know a few things that probably aren't super urgent, but because they're around and seeing it. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Hmm, interesting. And something that has been a major thing through this time, um, and I know that you've spoken about this, is actually the need to have to visit people and help with the farewell part. And I lost my cat. Um, who was 15, more than 15, almost 15 and a half um, back in June and was lucky enough to have Dr. Emma come to my house um, and we were in sort of a lenient time there where she could come and, and we, we distanced and did it as safely as we could and stuff but it was actually really special 
for me on many levels to not have to say goodbye to my cat um, who'd been a friend for so long and have to take her into the clinic and that be the farewell. And I know that you've spoken about having the need to do this and the fact that more people are, are requesting this of you guys through this time. That's That must be incredibly hard. And, and how are you just controlling that in terms of you being safe and keeping the human client safe as well? Yeah, it's you're right. It's It's definitely... I think the number of euthanasias did increase for for some time there um, and we decided as a clinic and I think a number of clinics have done the same that something like that, if you're not able to be present and say goodbye, I think that sticks with you for life and I think that we all made the decision to take the risk in having clients there with them Uh, But we just took measures, you know, making sure that we're all masked up, making sure that, you know, initially um, there is only the nurse placing the catheter and getting them ready and but then giving, yeah, definitely giving them the option to be there and putting in an extension line so we could step back. Um, But, yeah, it definitely has been really hard. I mean, you can't even put your hand on their shoulder or you know, in some cases, give them a really big hug. And that's been really tricky. And, you know, most people have had extra stress on the phone because they're not sure whether they can, you know, leave the house as a family to come in and do it. So, yeah, there's definitely been more challenges around euthanasia um, than ever before. And even just fitting them in to the workflow and the work schedule has been challenging particularly if they're you know a client that's been coming to you for years and they they want to be able to see you they want to be able to bring their animal in and which means that sometimes you are squeezing that in on top of the vets increasing their workload because we care and and that yeah that definitely takes a toll after a while and so you've been you've been a fairly you've been a fairly strong advocate for for mental health and for looking after yourself and the industry for a while now. How have you found your mental health and how have you found your yourself and your colleagues coping throughout throughout this time? Uh, I mean, we all have our days and we all have our vents and there's some swearing involved in this. <laughs> so, um, I think that's truly necessary. Yeah, and there's a lot, I shouldn't know this, but a lot of junk food and, um, yeah, and just – making sure we debrief about things, we talk about things, we don't just vent and, you know, bitch, we actually, you know, talk about things and then work out if there's a solution to it as well. Because I think that sometimes you can just go around in circles and you can get really caught up and catastrophize everything a little bit and it's not healthy for anyone to just, you know, bitch and moan all the time really. Like you have to... If you keep looking at the bright side in this situation, that's also not really healthy either. You need to acknowledge your feelings and, um, you know, make uh, not um, diminish them just because other people are, are worse off, I guess. We all look at, like look out for each other. We all make sure we talk about things. It is definitely hard because over the years I've created a balance by using boundaries and, you know, saying no and taking my lunch break and leaving on time and leading by example and those sorts of things. But I think in this COVID time, it's so hard to do those things 
that sometimes you don't have that choice. Yeah. Yeah, every, everyone sort of everyone sort of schedules and life's just being turned on its head and you don't have those same sort of coping mechanisms that you that you once did and sort of relied on. Yeah, 100%. And I definitely struggled the first time around. I think when everyone was like, oh, I'm going to exercise and bake banana bread every day. And I was like, I'm trying to get through the day. And then yeah, exactly. the second time around, I'm like, I'm going to exercise every day and bake banana bread. And everyone's <laughs> like, oh, not again. That's the other one, macrame or whatever that people are doing as well. Yeah. So, um, yeah, just making sure that you, I think, in this period, acknowledge how you're feeling, um, talk about it. Um, try not to sink in it, but try and find some coping mechanism um, that has worked for you before. I think that's really important. And I think I've heard you say as well, it's it's about giving yourself permission to not be okay, to, to feel those feelings, to have those emotions and to realise that that's just a normal part of life and that's how it's going to be. Yeah, absolutely. Sometimes. Absolutely. Yeah, that's it. And it's an acknowledgement that uh, sometimes you might be feeling a little bit rough, which is a nice segue to your Facebook page that you started about 18 months ago. Let's talk about feeling rough. Talk us through what led to that and, and what drove you to, to kickstart that page. Yeah. So I wanted to start that as, because I, I sort of knew that there was so much out there, like there was um, so many great resources and charities and non-for-profits that were supporting our industry. But I found found it a bit difficult to kind of, like I really had to search for them or research them and work out what they're about and I felt like it, it just depend. it was dependent on who you connected with or which way you kind of wanted your career to go as to whether or not you would find them. And so I started it, yeah, with this, with this thought of, you know, having a little hub where I could connect them all. And that was my intention. But then uh, the charity ball happened and it sort of consumed a lot of that. And I think that there's so many great resources out there. Um, and although I'd like to provide that, finding the time to do that, I think now the page uh, or that sort of platform might be for an annual charity ball. I don't know. I'm not, I'm not too sure. Like I had really great, um, I guess, goals for it, but, I think, you know, this year um, we've all just been trying our best to look after ourselves and um, I found it really hard even looking after myself the first time or the first lockdown. Um, but now that I've sort of bounced back and, um, you know, I'm going back to myself and wanting to help others that, yeah, I'll probably kickstart something with that again. And, you know, I think that I'd really love it to be, a platform that encourages not only the nurses but people in the industry to to reach out and and to find these resources and share the resources. But yeah, I just I'm not sure how yet. Well you touched on the fact that you had the ball earlier in the year and at the moment it's kind of remaining as this last great party that we all had until such time as we can get back together. <laughs> it really is. I had like that and a, and a really close friend's wedding about a week later and they're like the two things that I'm now clinging on to that there's faith that parties will come back. Firstly, congratulations on the success of that ball and we've obviously we've shared that publicly across our pages and we've spoken to you since about it. But 
Um, you must have been blown away by by where that evolved to and the, and the support that it got because it was it seems like it was needed. Yeah, I was. Yeah, I was shocked. I had this idea and I thought that it would come after a lot of other ideas. And so, you know, and those other ideas being the let's talk about feeling rough and just having this moment of that's what I was going to call that. And then I was like, this is great. I've got a platform to then eventually do this big charity ball. It kind of went a bit backwards for me and I just didn't expect. (laughs) I just, I don't know, I get it. I guess it's the relentless optimist in me that just, went for it, took a risk and it paid off and it was a heap of fun. It was a nice little hobby that I just put my life and soul into and I was just blown away by the support from the um, the sponsors, um, the people that wanted to show up and have a good time and, I mean, I also – also knew that everyone in the industry loves a party. So I I did have, I guess. That became very apparent. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I think that's the thing. Like we, we often talk about the stresses and what a hard what a hard job it often is to be in the veterinary industry. And I think a ball is the perfect way for everyone to just let loose and, and to have a great time, but also still be able to champion that mental health message. I think it was obviously for... Hopefully, there's a few people out there listening to it that attended the ball. But if you weren't, it was it was quite a special night. It was it was great fun, and and it's and it still sped the message. Yeah, it was it was a heap of fun. I I had a moment actually um, when you sort of organise these things, or you I, I don't know if you, when you've you know you're at a party or you're the you might be hosting the party. You find yourself alone a lot of the night because everyone you you're kind of running around doing a lot of things. And I had this moment where I caught myself standing on the side of the dance floor, looking around, like I must've looked like an absolute weirdo, just looking around with this massive grin on my face, just thinking, this is amazing. This is, it's been an absolute ball. And yeah, I just, the support and the connections and yeah, it's just, it blew me away that that many people responded and that many people put their hand out and donated and committed. And it was just, yeah, it was amazing. I couldn't have asked for a better night. Yeah, awesome. I'm glad you took that moment to take it all in because it is nerve-wracking. We know from um, Jez from running the walks that that first kind of part of the day in particular, you're just like, mm. I was in a spin. Um, it's all a bit of a blur, but then you do have that you have to take that chance to stand back and go, oh, this is a really cool thing. Mm. The thing that I find the most moving, I suppose, is when you actually notice that people have come to something that you've put on. And and without it, it's just, well, it's, it's it'd be pretty lame, to be honest, if you put an event on and no one came. So it's a special feeling when people buy into that, um, which they certainly did. Well, yeah, and actively engage in it as well. What is the future looking like for the ball? Like we, we don't know really kind of what's going to happen tomorrow or next week at this stage, but what are you hoping for um, for the future of the event? Well, I don't know if I should leak this or not, but I definitely booked a, a, a date in for next year um, at the same place. It'll be the same amount of fun, except COVID has just been a real downer on everything. And I'm not sure that... I'm still wondering whether it will go ahead. That's why I sort of haven't really made any 
commitments or decisions really to it. Um, and San Remo have been absolutely amazing with it. I think they know how unpredictable everything is too. Um, I mean, there's always ways that we could do a, a fundraiser. And I still think that you could probably host something that would be just as fun, even if there wasn't any dancing. Still in the mix, but it's definitely something I would love to do once a year or once every two years, because I think it's important to continue ra raising the awareness um, and to support non-for-profits and charities that support our industry. And that big golden thing that is something to look forward to that I think is so incredibly important um, in keeping your spirits high and your positivity and, yeah, just keeping you, I guess, um, motivated to to stay around. And I know Jack's definitely keen to see the, uh, see the Brazilian dancers again. I know he got a kick out of that last time. <laughs> Hey, actually, maybe we should get you involved. That's next a great time. idea. Uh, it's not necessary, thank you. That's a very good idea. I know his partner Laura would be very keen on that. Yeah. <laughs> great night. Dancers were fantastic. Um, enough said. Just sort of somewhat lastly, I was going to ask you about, generally speaking, for where the industry's at by way of like specific support structures and we, you've acknowledged that there's some great people we've had kathy uh warburton on the on the podcast we've had nadine who's running love your pet love your vet um as well and she's doing some great work out of queensland and and it's kind of there is this need to get more people doing this great work what's your take on 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 that support system and like where do you think it's at kathy warburton is actually she started this um uh, reflect and grow program with the um, ABA and I actually signed up to that um, and I think there's myself and another nurse but the rest are, are vets and um, the idea is that we meet um, once a, a month for a few months um, and Kathy um, you know leads it and she facilitates it initially but then the conversation continues and um, evolves as we sort of take it um, and it's really great. Like we've had one so far and we've got one coming up. Um, and I think that, you know, she said, and, and I absolutely agree that something like this should be the normal in the industry. You should have a group that you can, um, meet with and chat with and, um, you know, find a mentor and really use them. And although the AVA has a mentoring program, from, I think it's definitely there's quite a few people that that join it and and um, and use it but I think that there's a number of people that don't that really would benefit from it and so I think there's a little bit of roadblocks as to why they take it up or, or you know maybe it's that they don't know the person and they don't feel comfortable so and I don't think it's um, necessarily you know like we can debrief in our workplaces but I think it's really important to connect with people that are in the industry because like I know that my husband doesn't want to listen to my venting and <laughs> and the things I I need to kind of debrief about at work because he's not going to understand them and I'm probably going to not get the responses that I um am expecting so that I think it's really important to still connect with people in the industry so I think that something like Kathy has um, 
created and um, has now, yeah, set set up, I think is probably something that should just be the the normal in the industry. Yeah, it seems to be something that's that's quite common in the in the human medicine industry, the the mentorship and and sort of these group debriefings, these one and one on ones, but it hasn't sort of hasn't really made the jump across to to the veterinary field. But hopefully, as you say, the work that Kathy's doing and others are doing, that that that, that continues to grow. Well you're slowly shifting it from this reactive approach, which I think is probably fair to say, right? There's been and then it's not just the vet industry, but we are obviously focused on that for this conversation, that there's been this, and Nadine's spoken about this as well, that she's busiest when she gets the news that we've lost someone in the industry, right? Um, we how we started Flynn's Walk because we lost Flynn. We, we went to Toowoomba and walked there because a vet nurse took her life in Toowoomba. So we have, we're, we are trying with Flynn's Walk is you know, to be more proactive. And it's great to see people like Kathy, Nadine and, and all um, Vanessa as well doing this kind of resilience training and this proactive approach to debriefing along the way, no matter how small or big it might be, and building people up to be confident to speak up um, when they feel that they need to. Or maybe they don't even realise they needed to, but they find themselves in a conversation where they can open up. So I, I think as the time has gone on, I am following more people from the industry, like I said before, on social media accounts. But I've definitely noticed that even on Are You OK Day, there were so many clinics, vets, nurses, animal welfare workers and the like posting about Are You OK Day using the hashtag. And I'm, and maybe I'm just seeing it from the people that I follow, but I genuinely believe that there's more of it than there was two years ago when I started paying attention and sat up straight. So I think that's really cool as well. You know, um, we were able to network some vets from across the world and create a, a, a social media collage post we put up and we're already talking about how that needs to triple next year and have more faces in it and stuff. So like, there's just cool things like that where people are buying into a joint message. Yeah, I think you summed that up really well. You're right, it sh- there should be more proactive things happening. And I think we're doing a really great job of sort of breaking down that stigma and getting people to put their hand up and say that they're not okay or that it's okay to not be okay. But I think there's still a bit of muddy water or gray area around the next step and, and sort of even, or. Yeah, well, that's it. It's, I mean, it's, it's one thing to sort of, to put yourself out there and say to someone or to yourself that you're not doing, you're not doing well, that you're not okay. But if you don't know how to take it to that next step or who to go to or who to talk to, then it can it can sometimes even put you in the complete opposite direction and send you further down the hole. Yeah, for sure. And I think making sure that you're in a workplace that has values somewhat aligned with, you know, support and mentally healthy and that they're actually aware of what burnout is. They're aware of the suicide rate. They're aware of um, compassion fatigue and all these things that get thrown around in the when talking about the industry. I think it's important to find a workplace that has a some like they don't have to fully understand but they have to have some understanding of it um because if they don't then they're probably contributing to it and you don't need to be in a workplace like that yeah well said so we've uh well it's been it's been a a great conversation and we've addressed some of the challenges and, and at the moment things aren't ideal and workflows aren't what they normally would be but what is it that actually you do love about your job and what is it that you that gets you out of bed and why have you been doing it for so long? Yeah, uh, I guess I should probably 
like it's it's you can get being in the industry for 10 years you um and being a nurse you do or I found myself getting pulled in a few little directions but at the end of the day yeah you chose like I chose this career because I wanted to work with animals and I guess I had that's that humanitarian side of me that just wants to to help and the empathy and compassion over the years watching an animal that's come in really sick and you nurse them and you helped them and they walk out healthy that's obviously the most rewarding part of the job probably what comes in second to that at the moment is the chocolates in the uh order (laughs) (laughs) good to know Uh, yeah no it's um yeah seeing them walk out the door and and be healthy and providing support to the clients in their time of you know when especially when their animal has been taken out the back and they're quite distressed lending them support I find is always um quite rewarding for me and over the years because I've worked in emergency and big hospitals I've worked in wildlife um and now being in a small practice a branch clinic building that rapport with clients has just been uh growing and growing over the years and I just absolutely love it and being a part of that and being a part of a little community um and being able to help them and I mean I think a lot of people think that you know the obvious in our job or the I guess the the most challenging or the the bad part of the job is the euthanasias but I somewhat find it rewarding or comforting to know that we're able to provide that animal with an end of life um, support and to then provide the, the client and the owner with that compassion and that understanding and to be there for them, knowing what it's like. I think that has also played a part in my job satisfaction, which sounds a bit yeah, I don't know if it sounds a bit morbid or a bit weird, but it's actually a, a big part of my job that, um, of course, you know, there's euthanasias that are really awful and they're behavioural related and things, but when they're an older animal that's had a beautiful life with the owners that are there and they've been, you know, had everything, um, all options exhausted, I think it's kind of nice to be there for, for, the, for the pet, yeah, and the owner. Yeah, we invest a hell of a lot in our animals and and we've said it before on this podcast and and at our walks that we need to make sure we're investing more into the people that look after our animals because um exactly. You're the godparents at the end of the day in a way to to our our fur babies and Jez, I'm off to invest in one of those pill popper straw things. Um so <laughs> if you if you're interested, I think Amazon do free shipping um over forty dollars so we might have to buy a few how about i post you guys one my shout oh wouldn't expect that but wouldn't say no <laughs> these are the perks you get when you run a podcast that's it hey that could be, technically could be our first sponsorship jez true true done i'll sponsor you guys true. with pill poppers <laughs> if you've just tuned in you heard it here first that's a weird part of the conversation to hear if you tuned in 48 minutes in um but thank you um Thanks for sharing. Thanks for your time and thanks for your work because um, I know yep. it's going a long way and, and I hope we can get back uh, to the dance floor um, next year at the ball. Yeah, me too. That'll be heaps of fun. 
great to catch up with Sinead on, on the podcast, Jez. And I am really hoping that next year we can have some sort of event uh, again because the ball was was a real hoot um, down at San Remo. We we almost quite literally set the place on fire. <laughs> there was a yes a building fire the next night um, from some electrical uh, fault, I think. But um, hopefully San Remo and the gang down there are going well and we'd love to be able to get back there and uh, be a part of another great event. Well, uh- as well as seeing you in a uh, in the Brazilian dancing troupe, I think I think everyone wants to see that, and hopefully we get there. No one deserves that kind of punishment, I can tell you right now. Well, Jez, it's twenty twenty's been one hell of a year, and the last six, seven, eight months have have been challenging in more ways than one. And for many uh, people, are finding themselves not having a great time or having a shitty day or a shitty week or a shitty month. Um, but there's always help available and there's a heap of great support services out there. There certainly are. We've got Are You OK, who we who we love to champion. They've got so many good messages um, and ways to ways to ask that question. It's always good to remind people that even though that day's passed, that you can still reach out, you can still ask that question 365 days a year if you want to. And it's an important thing to do. Uh, there's also Beyond Blue, there's Headspace, there's Kids Helpline if you're under 25. If you are in a crisis or if you or if you need urgent help, there's, there's Lifeline on 13 11 14. There's Suicide Callback Service or if you do feel it's an emergency, then then please call triple zero. Yeah, definitely. And and also in the vet industry in particular, um, it's important to identify where potentially there are support services already in place through EAP outlets mm, and the like. Exactly. So, um, yeah, we challenge you to go out and ask that of your manager or your boss or, or the practice manager yep. um, and see whether there is or isn't one and, you know, um, follow those avenues if you can. Jez, great to have you uh, as part of the conversation today and um, we're continuing it online as well at flinswalk.com.au and across our Facebook and Instagram. So um, if you're not following us there, jump on and give us a like or a follow and subscribe to the podcast, tell a friend. Um, yep. Sharing is caring. So we'd love love for you to, to if, if you've enjoyed listening, uh, to share it on your own network or amongst your friends in your own WhatsApp groups and things like that. Um, all of the support goes a really long way. And it's fair to say we rely on quite a lot of word of mouth Um in the, in, this, in the early stages of growth we're in. So, uh, yeah, yeah, exactly. Thanks for your support um, of the podcast and our mission more broadly. And we look forward to sharing some more great conversations with you soon. And Jez, I look forward to chatting with you again on the next one. Well said, well said. Well said.